welcome to Vino Vitivici, a podcast on the history of wine. In this podcast, I'll take you through the history behind the bottle and show you that wine is more than just a drink you consume. It takes you on an adventure, spanning the globe and connecting people through food, culture, and language. On today's episode, we'll discuss what wine production looked like in ancient Mesopotamia and discover why the cradle of civilization has gained a reputation as a beer-drinking culture. One thing to note before we begin is that ancient Mesopotamia has complicated geopolitical borders, with empires often overlapping in time and space, and rising and falling at various points during their rule. These factors make it challenging to concisely talk about the region, so for the purposes of this podcast, we will largely focus on the Sumerians dating from 4500 to 1900 BC, the Assyrians dating from 2500 to 609 BC, the Akkadians dating from 2234 to 2154 BC, and the Babylonians dating from 1895 to 539 BC. All of these dates referenced here are provided to give you historical context and refer to the rise and ultimate fall of the empires. I will also note that some of these dates are not universally agreed upon among all archaeologists and historians given imperfect records. Well, now that that's out of the way, let's get to the fun stuff. Sit back, grab a glass of your favorite wine or beer in this case, and let's dive in. Mesopotamia was situated within the borders of what is now modern-day Iraq. The name Mesopotamia comes from the Greek words meso, meaning between, and potamos, meaning rivers. The two rivers nearby, the Tigris and Euphrates, provided a constant water supply to the people, and its frequent flooding enriched the soil with key nutrients in an otherwise barren desert. This allowed the people to grow enough food to feed their population and foster trade. This area is considered to be a cradle of civilization due to the significant advancements in agriculture, language, writing, math, trade, and as we discovered in our last episode, wine production that these early civilizations made. Previously, we found that the earliest evidence of winemaking was discovered in Georgia around 6000 to 5800 BC. Wine production at that time was still rudimentary, with ancient cultures testing and perfecting the recipe to figure out what worked and what didn't. By Mesopotamia's rise, however, wine production had developed significantly. Near the Zagros mountain range in western Iran, a Sumerian trading outpost was discovered at an archaeological site named Godin Tipi. This site was inhabited as far back as 5000 BC and was an important trading stop along the Great Khorasan Road, or what many historians refer to today as the Silk Road. The Silk Road was an important trading route for thousands of years, spreading from China to the Middle East. As archaeologists explored the Godin Teepee outpost, they uncovered sherds of pottery in several of the rooms dating back to 3500 to 3100 BC. When reconstructed, 
one of the large jars had red residue in the interior at both the bottom of the jar and one of its sides. This residue tested positive for tartaric acid, proving that it almost certainly held wine at some point. Since the stain was on one of the jar's sides, archaeologists believe that the jars were stored on their side to keep the seal moist and prevent the wine from turning into vinegar, similar to how we store modern-day wine bottles. The shape of the jar also suggested it was used in the pouring of a liquid. It had a skinny neck and could be sealed. Clay stoppers were also found throughout the site, giving further evidence for this hypothesis. Archaeologists uncovered similar jars and stoppers in another room that appeared to be used for wine production, and found open jars at a wealthy home nearby. The Sumerian people lived in Lower Mesopotamia, near both the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, just north of the Persian Gulf. Much of Lower Mesopotamia suffered from a harsh climate that could exceed 110 degrees Fahrenheit in the summer, with little to no rainfall throughout the year. Although the soils near the rivers were filled with nutrients, this challenging climate meant that basic materials such as timber, metals, and minerals could not be found here, making trade a necessity in order for these civilizations to expand. Sumerian trading outposts similar to Godin Tipi have been found along the periphery of Mesopotamia, showing how significant trade was in this culture. Godin Tipi's proximity to the Zagros mountain range not only meant that the Sumerians could easily trade their goods for timber and minerals here, but it also meant that they could trade for other commodities, such as grapes that grew in the cooler altitude of the mountains for use in the production of wine. As the Sumerians' basic needs were met, food, water, shelter, they branched out from the pursuit of basic necessities and innovated, creating a more complex society that could focus on scholarly pursuits such as writing and mathematics, as well as more diversification in their economy. Citizens were able to specialize their trade and focus on the production of luxury commodities such as wine. During this time, the people of Sumer also developed the first written language known as cuneiform around 3300 BC using pictorial images that looked like the items in question. In the beginning, cuneiform was primarily used in business transactions such as orders and receipts, but over time the writing became more advanced. The Sumerians moved away from pictorial imagery and started using more abstract characters to represent the language. Cuneiform was even used to develop literary epics and poetry. The written language was later adopted by surrounding civilizations, including the Akkadians. One cuneiform tablet dating to around 2031 BC shows a receipt for jugs of wine from an estate supervisor that was received by the estate's cook. This is one of the earliest mentions of a wine transaction that we have record of and shows that by the third millennium BC, wine was a commodity that was bought and sold in the region. Since trees could not grow in lower Mesopotamia, you can imagine that grapevines also struggled to flourish in such harsh conditions. But what do vines need in order to survive? Grapevines typically grow between 30 to 50 degrees latitude in both the northern and southern hemispheres. 
This is why areas like France and California are prime locations for wine production. The vines do not like extremes and prefer to experience all four seasons to allow the life cycle of the vine to run its course. When the vines experience extreme heat, the vine will stop growing to conserve energy and the grapes will not fully ripen. If the growing season is too cold, the bud burst of the plant will be delayed and the grapes will not ripen in time for harvest. The vine also needs consistent access to water. During a period of drought, the plant will stop circulating water to the vines, causing photosynthesis to stop and the grapes to not fully ripen. Too much water, on the other hand, will allow the vines to grow too much, leading to less sugar concentration in the grapes and the risk that the vine leaves or canopy will shade the grapes too much and they will not get enough sunlight to fully ripen. Sunlight can also pose a risk to the grapes. In intense sunny conditions, the grapes can get sunburnt, giving them a bitter taste. Grapevines are a little like Goldilocks and need everything to be just right in order for the production of great wines. Lower Mesopotamia is right on the cusp of the latitude sweet spot for grape growing. Although the climate was slightly different then than it is now, Given the high heat, sun exposure, lack of well-drained soil, and low rainfall, growing grapevines in Mesopotamia was not a successful endeavor. Instead, the Mesopotamian civilizations traded with people who lived in the mountain ranges to the north and east to get the grapes they needed. Here, the growers were able to mitigate the harsh climate with the coolness of the higher altitudes in the Taurus and Zagros mountains. In Herodotus's The Histories, Book 1, Chapter 194, Herodotus, the Greek historian, often credited as the father of history, describes the shipment of wine in Mesopotamia during a visit to Babylon in the 400s BC. He explains that the merchants would construct giant, circular boats made with waterproof hides in Armenia, which was to the north of Mesopotamia. Herodotus goes on to say, quote, The men fill with straw, put the cargo on board, mostly wine and palmwood cask, and let the current take them downstream. They are controlled by two men. Each has a paddle, which he works standing up, one in front drawing his paddle towards him, the other behind giving it a backward thrust. End quote. The boats would travel along the Tigris and Euphrates rivers with the shipment. Upon arrival in Babylon, the wine would be sold to merchants in the city and the boat would be broken down and its parts sold since it would take too much energy and a much stronger boat for the boat to travel upstream against the current. The rivers were likely used for much of the wine trade coming from the north, even prior to the Babylonian Empire. A case could be made for the Sumerians using this form of trade as well. Not only did a new boat have to be constructed for each shipment, but there were also tolls along the waterways that merchants would have to pay. This meant that wine was an extremely expensive trade that only the wealthy could afford. The shipments from the east were also expensive and much slower, since the cargo had to be carried great distances and did not have the speed of the river to rely on. In Mesopotamia, wine was often referred to as beer of the mountains, 
Given the popularity of beer in the region and Anans where wine was grown and produced. In 2340 BC, the ruler of Lagash describes his growing wine cellar and the quote, great vases from the mountains it had. There was no word for wine cellar at the time, so instead the word for reserves of beer was used in the text, according to historian Rod Phillips. One city known for its reserves of wine was the Neo-Assyrian city of Nimrud. Cuneiform tablets have been found dating to around 900 to 600 BC that describe the wine rations for the royal household. The household consisted of 6,000 people, which included everyone from family members to unskilled laborers. The wine ration allotted depended on the person's stature in the household, with the standard ration for a man being 250 milliliters, or about a third of a standard bottle of wine. The queen and her attendants, however, received 54 liters a day, or 54,000 milliliters, which equates to 72 bottles of wine. It is unclear how many people were part of the queen's entourage, but that sounds like a party. In the ancient city-state of Mary and modern-day Syria, more than 20,000 cuneiform tablets were found written in Akkadian, some of which described the wine trade in Mesopotamia around 1750 BC before the city was sacked by the Babylonians. One of the tablets explains how a merchant got a great deal on wine for the king of Mary. The merchant received a discounted price on 180 jars of wine after arguing that he should not have to pay more for the boat that delivered the wine than what it would sell for once it arrived in Mary. According to the Mary records, the king and queen drank only the best wine. The wine was red and often sweet or blended. This likely covered up any faults with the wine that could easily have occurred during the shipment or storage. Many of the civilizations in Mesopotamia even had deities associated with the vine, such as the Sumerian goddess Justine or Sidori, who was mentioned in the Epic of Gilgamesh. The fact that there were deities devoted to the grapevine shows that wine had made its mark in Mesopotamia and played an important role in its culture, even if it was only enjoyed by the upper classes of society. Although there was evidence that wine was drunk among Mesopotamians' elites, beer was the drink of choice across all socioeconomic backgrounds and is the beverage Mesopotamia is known for. Mesopotamian beer typically contained two ingredients for its base, a barley bread called bapir and malted barley. The beer sometimes included additional flavorings like date syrup or honey to sweeten the beer. However, it does not appear that hops were used. Sorry, IPA lovers. The bread and barley in this drink meant that it didn't just quench people's thirst, but it also provided sustenance, and the alcohol content present in the beer made it safer to drink than the local water. The ingredients used for beer were more readily available than grapes, so beer was much cheaper and was something that wasn't just limited to the upper echelons of society. For these reasons, beer was heavily produced and exceeded the production of wine throughout Mesopotamia. Beer was typically drunk from a communal jar with long-stemmed reed straws, which were depicted in many ancient banquet scenes. The straws ensured that the drinker got past the residue that lived at the top of the beverage, since filtration was not an option at the time. Brewing beer was often done by the women in society, 
specifically the priestesses of Ninkasi, the Sumerian goddess of beer and beer making. This was likely because beer was so closely associated with baking bread that while the women were preparing the food, they also would brew some beer. A hymn to Nikasi was recorded in cuneiform around 1800 BC that described in detail how to make Mesopotamian beer. This poem was likely sung while the beer was being made and passed down from generation to generation before it was finally put to clay tablet. At the end of the hymn, it compares the pouring of the beer to the waters of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, saying, quote, When you pour out the filtered beer of the collector vat, it is like the onrush of the Tigris and Euphrates. Ninkasi, you are the one who pours out the filtered beer of the collector vat. It is like the onrush of the Tigris and Euphrates. Most beer was brewed in individual households, but as demand increased, it is likely that larger-scale breweries popped up to serve wealthier clientele or sell a unique recipe. At a site known as Tel Al-Hiba in modern-day southern Iraq, archaeologists uncovered many materials dating back to 2600 to 2350 BC that could have been used in the large-scale production of beer. A cuneiform tablet also uncovered at the site had the Sumerian word for brewery etched into it, providing further evidence that this site could have served as an ancient brewery. As beer production became more specialized, different varieties began popping up. In a text dating back to 3000 BC, there is mention of nine different types of beer. Another text from 2500 BC mentions five types of beer categorized by their color, golden, red, dark, sweet dark, and strained, which is not too far off from how we categorize beer today. In Babylonia, there was over 20 categories of beer based on their attributes. Regardless of the type of beer, we know that Mesopotamians loved it. Beer was used in religious ceremonies, sacrifices, and celebrations, but it was also used as a way to unwind and relax after a hard day's work. With the growing prominence of alcoholic beverages in Mesopotamia, leaders started looking for ways to regulate it. The Code of Hammurabi, written in 1754 BC by a Babylonian king, did just that. This is the eye-for-an-eye, tooth-for-tooth set of laws that served as a basis for modern-day governing. Included in this code are several laws pertaining to beer and wine that are interesting to note. Law 108 says, If a tavern keeper does not accept grain according to gross weight and payment of drink, but takes money, and the price of the drink is less than that of the grain, she shall be convicted and thrown into the water. Law 109 says, If conspirators meet in the house of a tavern keeper, and these conspirators are not captured and delivered to the court, the tavern keeper shall be put to death. Law 110 says, If a sister of God opens a tavern or enter a tavern to drink, then shall this woman be burned to death. Now these are some pretty harsh punishments based on the crimes but it also shows how important beer and wine were in Mesopotamian society to call for such severe sentences. The tavern keepers were always female and typically sold both beer and wine to their customers. Law 108 refers to the crime of watering down someone's drink or overcharging them for it. 
a crime most of us can understand and have probably experienced. The punishment for such a crime? Drowning, which seems oddly fitting if, albeit cruel. Law 109 punishes tavern keepers for allowing people to plan crimes in their tavern, suggesting that taverns might not have had the best clientele at the time. And Law 110 calls for Sisters of God to burn to death if they even enter a tavern. Priestesses use beer and wine in religious ceremonies and sacrifices, so it was considered sacrilege if the priestesses touched or indulged in alcohol outside of these religious ceremonies for fear that it made them unclean and could anger the gods. These laws in the Code of Hammurabi represented some of the first regulations on the alcohol industry. Today, the punishments are less severe, but the laws are much more complex. From laws to religion, beer and wine permeated every aspect of Mesopotamian society. Beer might have been more popular due to its accessibility and price point, but wine production held its own among the Mesopotamian elite. During this time, wine production exploded and became more than just an experiment or something isolated in one community. It became a large-scale business that included everything from agriculture to distribution to sales and laid the groundwork for the modern-day wine trade. From Mesopotamia, wine spread through trade from city to city. It connected disparate people across Europe and Asia through a love of the grapevine. A Sumerian proverb says, He who does not know beer does not know what is good. I will add on to that and say, Those that do not know wine do not know what is great. All source material referenced throughout today's podcast will be included in the show notes for you to check out. On our next episode, we will continue our journey by diving into early Egyptian wine production. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Vino Vidi Vici. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.